Let's look at Article 35 of the Belgic Confession, the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe and confess that our Savior Jesus Christ did ordain and institute the sacrament of the Holy Supper to nourish and support those whom he has already regenerated and incorporated into his family, which is his church. Now those who are regenerated have in in them a twofold life, the one corporal and temporal, which they have from the first birth and is common to all men, the other spiritual and heavenly, which is given them in their second birth, which is affected by the word of the gospel in the communion of the body of Christ. And this life is not common, but is peculiar to God's elect. In like manner, God has given us for the support of the bodily and earthly life, earthly and common bread, which is subservient thereto and is common to all men, even as life itself. But for the support of the spiritual and heavenly life which believers have, he has sent a living bread which descended from heaven, namely Jesus Christ, who nourishes and strengthens the spiritual life of believers when they eat him, that is to say, when they appropriate and receive him by faith in the Spirit. In order that he might represent unto us this spiritual and heavenly bread, Christ has instituted an earthly and visible bread as a sacrament of his body, and wine as a sacrament of his blood, to testify by them unto us, that as certainly as we receive and hold this sacrament in our hands, and eat and drink the same with our mouths, by which our life is afterwards nourished, we also do as certainly receive by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our soul, the true body and blood of Christ, our only Savior, in our souls for the support of our spiritual life. Now, as it is certain and beyond all doubt that Jesus Christ has not enjoined to us the use of his sacraments in vain, so he works in us all that he represents to us by these holy signs. Though the manner surpasses our understanding and cannot be comprehended by us, as the operations of the Holy Spirit are hidden and incomprehensible. In the meantime, we err not when we say that what is eaten and drunk by us is the proper and natural body and the proper blood of Christ. But the manner of our partaking of the same is not by the mouth, but by the Spirit through faith. Thus then, though Christ always sits at the right hand of his Father in the heavens, Yet does he not, therefore, cease to make us partakers of himself by faith. This feast is a spiritual table at which Christ communicates himself with all his benefits to us and gives us there to enjoy both himself and the merits of his suffering and death, nourishing, strengthening, and comforting our poor, comfortless souls by the eating of his flesh, quickening and refreshing them by the drinking of his blood. Further, though the sacraments are connected with the thing signified, nevertheless both are not received by all men. The ungodly indeed receives the sacrament to his condemnation, but he does not receive the truth of the sacrament, even as Judas and Simon the sorcerer both indeed received the sacrament, but not Christ who was signified by it, of whom believers only are made partakers. Lastly, we receive this holy sacrament, in the assembly of the people of God, with humility and reverence, 
keeping up among us a holy remembrance of the death of Christ our Savior with thanksgiving, making their confession of our faith and of the Christian religion. Therefore, no one ought to come to this table without having previously rightly examined himself, lest by eating of this bread and drinking of this cup he eat and drink judgment to himself. In a word, we are moved by the use of this holy sacrament to a fervent love towards God and our neighbor. Therefore, we reject all mixtures and damnable inventions which men have added unto and blended with the sacraments as profanations of them, and affirm that we ought to rest satisfied with the ordinance which Christ and his apostles have taught us, and that what we must speak of them in the same manner as they have spoken. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, there are three main topics in this long article of the Belgian Confession on the Lord's Supper. Really, the first five paragraphs of the article deal with the meaning or significance of the Supper. The sixth deals with proper partaking of it, and the seventh with rejection of man-made additions to the Supper. So that's how we're going to divide our discussion, and we're going to uh, copy the article in spending most of our time in discussing the meaning of the Supper as described in those first five paragraphs. Paragraph one, then, of this article is um, an introductory statement, and we might even call it a kind of summary statement of what follows in uh, the paragraphs two, three, four, and five. And that paragraph says basically three things about the Lord's Supper. First of all, Christ has ordained and instituted it. We ought not to have any question or problem with that. On the eve of his death at the last Passover, which he celebrated with his uh, apostles, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and wine from that Passover and made them signs of his body and blood and told his apostles to eat and drink of them in remembrance of him. In other words, he delivered this sacrament to his apostles so that they, on their part, could deliver it to the church in the years to come. And this is what Paul says about his delivery of the Lord's Supper to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11. I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. So it's something instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ himself for the sake of his church. The second thing which the article says is that he has given us this supper for the support and nourishment of faith. And that's the subject that we're going to be addressing in paragraphs 2, 3, 4, and 5, so we'll say no more about it right now. The third thing which the confession says in this first paragraph is that this supper is for those who have already been regenerated and incorporated into his family, that is, the church. That is, it is a, a sacrament instituted 
for believers. The confession does not see the Lord's Supper as a converting ordinance, as some of the early Puritans in our country called it. That is, it's not designed for the purpose of converting, bringing salvation to the unconverted and unbelieving. The preaching of the gospel is for that purpose, but this is a means of grace which is designed for those who already believe. That their faith, which already exists in them, might be nourished and strengthened. So this is, if if baptism is the sacrament of incorporation into the church, then the Lord's Supper is the sacrament of feeding the flock of God with the benefits of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So that's really what what we find in the first paragraph, just those three basic things about the Lord's Supper. It's in paragraph two that we get to the real meat of this article, and here the confession begins a very careful and extended explanation of what we would call the Calvinistic or Reformed view of the Lord's Supper. And we're going to take time to work through what the confession has to say here and touch on almost every point that the confession makes in these four paragraphs. The paragraph two, then, has two parts to it, really. First of all, it says that the regenerate have a twofold life. They have a corporal, that is a bodily and temporal life, an earthly life. This is the life that we receive from our natural birth and which we live here in this world and in our bodies. It's a life that is going to come to an end, of course. But we also have a spiritual and heavenly life. And this is the life which we receive through regeneration, that life which the scriptures call eternal life or everlasting life. This is the life that will never end. And while we remain here in the world, this life is a life that belongs to our souls, but not to our bodies. As the Apostle Paul implies, for example, in Ephesians 2, verse 1, when he says, You he has quickened, or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Or in Colossians 3, verse 1, where he says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. We have been made alive, we have been raised from the dead, in our souls. And so this life, which the confession is talking about, this uh, spiritual and heavenly life, is a life which belongs, for now anyway, to our souls. It will belong also to our bodies. 
when Christ raises them from the dead at the last day. And then the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that our bodies will become spiritual bodies. They will be glorified bodies, like the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this life will also be given to our bodies in the end. But while we remain here, we have a corporal and an earthly and a temporary life. Now that spiritual life, of which the Confession speaks here. It says three things about it's affected, that is, it's caused or created in us by the preaching of the gospel. The gospel, the preaching of the gospel is the means of grace that God uses to give us this uh, spiritual life. And that's, of course, uh, what Peter himself teaches us in 1 Peter 1, verses 20. Three and following. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and his flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So he talks of the earthly life, all flesh is as grass, but he talks also of the heavenly life that comes to us through our being born again by the power of the word of God. The second thing the confession says about this spiritual and heavenly life is that it's a life which we have in the communion of the body of Christ. It's a life that we have in the communion of the body of Christ. That is, it's a life that we have, first of all, as we are connected to Christ, intimately uh, connected to Christ, so that we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And it's a life which we have in communion with the other members of Christ's body as well. We cannot dissociate ourselves from that body of Christ without dissociating ourselves from Christ himself. We have that life in connection with the body of Christ and in connection, therefore, also with Christ himself. And the third thing that the confession says about that life is that it is peculiar to God's elect. In other words, the unbelieving have only the corporal and temporal life. The life That belongs to us in part now, but the unbelieving don't have any more than that. That's all that they have. Their portion, Psalm 17 says, is this life. But we have the heavenly life in addition to the earthly life. So that's the first thing that the confession says uh, in this Uh, lead up to its discussion of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. The second thing, and you you can see as we work through this how carefully the confession is moving along this path. The second thing that it says is that we have a food, God provides a food for the physical life, common bread, and he also provides a food for the spiritual life, the bread of life which comes down from heaven. And that bread of life 
is our Lord Jesus Christ. We read it a couple of minutes ago in John 6, verse 35, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So God provides bread for our earthly life while we are here in the world, and he provides bread for our heavenly life. And he nourishes and strengthens that spiritual life by this heavenly bread. When we eat Christ, when we eat him who is the bread of life. And we eat him when we appropriate and receive him by faith. So that's the second thing. First you have the distinction between the two parts of life, this earthly life and the heavenly life, and then the distinction between the two foods that our God gives for the nourishing of these different parts of life, for the nourishing of earthly life and for the nourishing of heavenly life. Now paragraph 3 then takes the next step along this path. And what the paragraph 3 does is teach us that in the Lord's Supper, our Lord Jesus Christ has made a connection between the earthly bread and the heavenly bread and the earthly life and the heavenly life. He's connected the two together. He has, in fact, made the earthly life a sign or a sacrament, as the confession says, of the heavenly life. And he has made the earthly bread which and wine, which we take in the Lord's Supper, a sign of the heavenly bread and the heavenly drink. He's established a connection between these two then. He makes the earthly a sign or a sacrament of the heavenly. And so this earthly sign in the Lord's Supper testifies to us of being fed with the heavenly bread who is our Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes one step further and makes a connection also between our hand and mouth, our physical hand and mouth, and a spiritual hand and mouth. (coughs) We take earthly bread with our hands and we eat it with our mouths, and thus it nourishes our earthly life. And the confession says, in the same kind of way, we take the spiritual bread with our spiritual hand and put it in our spiritual mouth and it nourishes our spiritual life. And that spiritual hand and mouth is faith. Faith is the hand and mouth of the soul. And so by this supper, by the connection he establishes between earthly life and heavenly life, 
earthly bread and heavenly bread, an earthly hand and a heavenly hand. The confession says, the Lord testifies to us that he gives us this heavenly bread. He speaks his promise to us in the Lord's Supper. And he says, I will give you my body and my blood to eat and to drink. And we receive that spiritual bread and that spiritual drink by faith, the hand and mouth of the soul. So that's paragraph three. And if we were Zwinglians, we would stop there. That's where our discussion of the significance of the Lord's Supper would end. It is a memorial feast. Christ signifies to us his body and blood and our partaking of him in those elements of the Lord's Supper. It's in paragraph 4, then, that the confession takes us beyond the Zwinglian view and to what we would call the Reformed or Calvinistic view. And this is, this view is that this association which our Lord Jesus Christ has made between earthly and heavenly in the Lord's Supper is an effective sign and therefore also a seal. The sign, the confession says in paragraph 4, accomplishes what it signifies. Christ has not enjoined the use of the sacraments in vain. But in our use of the sacraments, he works in us what he signifies to us. Now we can't understand that work. It's far beyond our understanding and our comprehension. And it's because, that's because the work of the Holy Spirit himself is beyond our comprehension and understanding. We don't understand the work of regeneration, precisely what the Spirit does to us to give us that new life. And we don't understand the work of sanctification, precisely what the Holy Spirit does to our souls to make us more holy. And we don't understand this Um, nourishing of the spiritual life by the body and blood of Christ either. And we don't understand how Christ then works in us through the Lord's Supper what he signifies to us. We simply confess that this is what happens. We eat and drink Christ himself. We eat and drink in the Lord's Supper the body and blood of Christ. And it's at this point that we get to what can probably be considered the most controversial statement in this article, if not in the Belgic Confession itself. And that is that in eating and drinking the signs of the Lord's Supper, we eat and drink also the proper and natural body of Christ and the proper blood of Christ. That is, we eat his body, his physical body, and we drink his physical blood. 
That's what the confession says here. Now, that raises a question, of course. Why does the confession use that, that very strong language? Why not simply say that the Lord's Supper makes us partakers of Christ and his benefits? Why go to this great length of saying we eat his proper and natural body and we drink his proper blood? Well, I think the answer to that question is that the confession wants to tie the Lord's Supper directly to John 6 and the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not in the verses we read, but in verses 53 to 56. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So Jesus is very emphatic there. We must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have eternal life. And what the confession is saying here is that in the Lord's Supper, we do exactly that. We eat and drink the the body and blood of Christ in the preaching of the gospel also. That's the word of life, the bread of life also. But the same is true in the Lord's Supper. We eat and drink the body and blood of Christ. And we eat and drink his physical body and his physical blood. You can't here imagine some kind of nebulous spiritual body of Christ. The spiritual body of Christ is his church, and we don't eat that. Now the confession is talking about his real physical body and his real physical blood, and it's saying we eat and drink that body and blood. Well, isn't that then Roman Catholicism? or at least Lutheranism. The Roman Catholics say that the bread and wine are transformed into the body and blood of Christ, and we take that body and blood of Christ, that physical body and physical blood of Christ, into our mouths, and we eat it, we consume it. And the Lutherans say that the body and blood of Christ are with the bread and wine, so that when we take the bread and wine into our mouths, we are also taking the physical body and physical blood of Christ into our mouths, and we eat it. And if the confession says we eat the proper and natural body of Christ and drink his proper blood, are, they not, are we not then saying the same thing that the Catholics and the Lutherans say? And the answer to that is no, not at all. And the reason is that distinction that the confession made between the hand and mouth of the body and the hand and mouth of the soul. The eating and drinking Christ, which we do in the Lord's Supper, is an eating and drinking of his proper and natural body and his proper blood with the spiritual hand and mouth that is with faith, by faith. We receive him by faith. We receive his body 
and his blood. We are united to him, being bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And we feed on his flesh and on his blood. We are so much one with him that we are like members of our own physical bodies. We are like hands and feet and noses and ears and fingers and so on in the body of Christ. That's how intimate the connection is. And we feed, therefore, on that body. We are nourished by that body of Christ. Now you can put this in, ter- in these terms also, and, and the confession does it. He makes us partakers of himself. He communicates himself and his benefits to us. That kind of language, that's appropriate language. But we want that connection with John 6. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So Christ's physical body and physical blood remain in heaven. His physical body is not present in the elements or with the elements of the Lord's Supper. There's no physical eating and drinking Christ in the Lord's Supper. There's only bread and wine on the physical side of things. But when we receive those signs in which Christ testifies to us that he feeds us with his body and blood, we actually do receive the body and blood of Christ. He causes us to enjoy himself and the merits of his sufferings and death. He nourishes and strengthens and comforts our souls by his body. He quickens and refreshes our souls with his blood, pointing to the different symbolism of the two different elements of the Lord's Supper. But he nourishes us with his body and with his blood. He feeds us so that we may say truly, we eat the Son of Man, we drink the Son of Man's blood. And then paragraph 5 says that it follows then that not all who partake of the sacrament receive the spiritual food. The sign is received by all who eat. The bread and wine is obviously taken and received by all who eat, but not all receive the thing signified. There are then two kinds of partaking in the Lord's Supper. There is an ungodly and unbelieving partaking. And that ungodly and unbelieving partaking is unto condemnation. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. That we must be worthy partakers lest we eat and drink judgment to ourselves. Those who partake in an ungodly and unbelieving way do not receive Christ's body and blood. And the confession gives us two examples, Simon and Judas. I'm not at all sure, by the way, that Judas actually did partake of the Lord's Supper. It's very well possible that our Lord sent him out before he instituted the Supper. 
And it's not explicitly stated either that Simon partook of the Lord's Supper. That's Acts chapter 8. It's just assumed on the basis of the fact that the apostles had been working there in Samaria and that a church had been established and that the administration of the Lord's Supper had taken place there. Simon had been baptized. But the other way of partaking is a partaking by faith. And in that partaking by faith, we receive Christ himself, his body, and his blood. So you see how closely reasoned and how carefully outlined this discussion of the meaning of the Lord's Supper is in the confession. Let's turn now to the proper partaking, which is described in the sixth paragraph of this article. The paragraph beginning, lastly, we receive this holy sacrament in the assembly of the people of God. There are five things, I think, which the confession says about this proper partaking. First of all, we notice it says that this proper partaking is in the assembly of the people of God not in casual gatherings of Christians, not when some friends get together and say, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is in the church of God, in the assembly of God's people. And it's in the assembly of God's people because Christ delivered it to his apostles and his apostles delivered it to the church. The church is gathered under the representatives of Christ, the preachers of the gospel, the elders, and the deacons. The church gathered for its worship of God in the public worship services. That's the point that the confession is making. So that's part of proper partaking. Using the Lord's Supper outside that setting is an abuse of God's gift. The second Uh, thing connected with proper partaking is humility and reverence. And it's humility basically because in the Lord's Supper the Lord is testifying to us in part, not wholly, about our sins. He's coming to us as sinners. And he's saying to us who are sinners, in order to have life, in order to be freed from the bondage of sin, in order to be sanctified and nourished unto everlasting life, you need my body and my blood. And so we have to humble ourselves in the Lord's Supper. We have to make confession of our sins. It's part of being a partaker of this supper. If we come with a a kind of... um, unspoken conviction that we are not sinners and that we do not really, that we are really saying then, we do not need the supper. The supper is for sinners. We have to humble ourselves. And we come with reverence. First of all, because of the presence of our Lord. He is the one who gives us these gifts. He is the one who is present with us by His Spirit. 
And we come with reverence towards him. But because he has instituted these signs and seals, they are holy and must be used carefully. In the same way that we treat the word of God with reverence, that is, we do not seek to impose on the word of God our understanding, but we seek instead to draw from the word of God what Christ himself is saying to us, so in the Lord's Supper we do not seek to impose on it our understanding and what we think should be its benefit. But we seek to receive in the Supper what the Lord himself intends us to receive. That's treating it with reverence. So that's the second thing. We partake with humility and reverence. The third thing is that we, in partaking, remember the death of Christ our Savior with thanksgiving. This is what he told us to do. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember him. So we are reminded of our sins, yes, but we remember the death of Christ for us, for our sins. And we remember that death of Christ with thanksgiving. Praising and adoring him for the great benefit he has given to us by the sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross. Fourthly, we make in the Lord's Supper, in proper partaking, a confession of our faith. The very act of partaking is a confession of faith. When we partake of that, we are saying, I believe that I am a sinner and that I need to be nourished and fed with the body and blood of Christ unto everlasting life. And finally, proper partaking means first rightly examining ourselves whether we are in the faith. Let a man examine himself, Paul says, for he who eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks judgment to himself. We do not want to eat and drink judgment. We want to eat and drink salvation in Christ. We must, therefore, examine ourselves whether we are in the faith. So those are the five things that belong to proper partaking. And we may sum them all up with a simple statement. Proper partaking means partaking by faith. Not with a careless and indifferent heart. Not with an unbelieving heart. But with a heart that believes and embraces Christ as the Savior, as our Savior. And then finally, the confession in the final paragraph of the article says that we reject all mixtures and damnable inventions which men have added unto and blended with the sacraments as profanations of them. And of course the confession has in mind here again the corruptions and additions and traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. It says we're, we're not going to celebrate the supper that way 
We're not going to do all those other things that the Church of Rome does. We want to rest satisfied with the ordinance which Christ and his apostles have taught us. And that ordinance is very simple. It's very simple. Christ took bread and wine and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body, this is my blood, eat and drink in remembrance of me. That's what, and we eat and drink. That's the the ceremony we engage in, a very simple ceremony. And the confession says, we're not going to add to that. That simple ceremony which Christ and his apostles taught us is enough for us. We're going to be satisfied with that. We don't want to profane the sacrament. We don't want to obscure the significance and benefit of that sacrament by all these human inventions. What Christ has given is enough for us. It ought to be enough for any man. This feast, then, the confession calls it a feast, is a gift of Christ to us. A great and wonderful gift of Christ to us. By which he feeds and nourishes our souls to everlasting life. And we should use it as he has taught us and by faith in him who is our Savior and Lord. May God bless us with his word.